Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy.co, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor results for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold, and more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast, as always, is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co and try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find to be much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional nicotine products. Today, I'm joined by my co-founder, Sammy Hamdouche. Hi, Sammy. Hey, John. And our guest is Joe Wilson, co-founder of Multiply Labs. Uh, Welcome, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, So thanks so much for being here. You know, whenever you're talking to any entrepreneur, it's always good to start with just how the hell did you wind up in this position? A lot of people, you know, take traditional jobs. And I think the entrepreneurial journey is always really interesting to hear. So if you can just begin at the beginning, uh, when did you first know that you were going to be an entrepreneur and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. Um, so I had one of those jobs. I had a, uh, a consulting job right after I went to college at Duke uh, and then after joined a consulting shop for about three years. And by about like two years in, I was pretty sure I hadn't had any other jobs before that. I was pretty sure I didn't want to do anything like this ever again. And so I actually went to MIT to get my MBA. And the whole purpose of going was, I think, a little bit to reset specifically around the, the tech and entrepreneur, entrepreneurship path. Uh, and so this, the summer before I started at MIT, I actually started working with, I helped run MIT Startup Accelerator. And so they had, MIT has, it's a hardware accelerator called Delta V and they're focused specifically on hard tech. So a lot of things that are five, 10 years in the future, trying to basically bring the products to market, commercialize them. Uh, and so the, a lot of the companies were focused on biotech, uh, a few on nanotech, um, others that were pure hardware plays, but it was a pretty pretty wide wide variety of stuff. Actually, some early Bitcoin stuff as well. Uh, and I mean, I think at that point was the working with those teams. I was pretty sure that I wanted to be in that space. Sure. Uh, and by by the end of the summer, I was pretty sure I wanted to start a company in that space. I thought that the ecosystem was relatively underinvested in, especially in the. I mean, in the hard tech world, uh, a lot of the plays up until that point had been software companies, um, but not a lot of focus had been on these companies that required a ton of infrastructure to get going, but could have potentially huge effects on the world at large. Did you have any kind of technical background? What did you study in college, for example? Yeah. So in, in college, I actually studied public policy. So pretty, pretty different. I was more on like the people side of things. But when I joined Accenture, I helped start up their analytic strategy group. So it was kind of the first time that Accenture was using advanced analytics to uh, really refine corporate strategy. So I work with companies uh, like J&J to develop in-house advanced analytics groups to look for insights on their specific products. And that, that was kind of the, the initial interest that got me going. It was deep dive into these like uh, not not exactly nascent areas. I mean, machine learning had been around for like a decade at that point, but definitely some of these areas that required a ton of context to get up to speed um, and potentially had like long-term effects. And did you have any uh, interaction with the Media Lab? I think I saw on your Twitter bio that you did some work with them. Can you explain that? I know yeah. it's a very high-profile group. Uh, I, I want to hear more about it. Yeah, so this was, I mean, right around the same time I was helping run MIT Startup Accelerator, I got involved with the Media Lab. 
specifically with this group called the Digital Currency Initiative. So this was uh, this was after like the first Bitcoin like boom and bust. So like I don't know, like fifteen hundred dollars is what it. Uh, and MIT had just started this project where they gave out Bitcoin to every MIT student. It's called the MIT Bitcoin Project, and out of that. There's a lot of excitement around Bitcoin and, and blockchain applications. So they started a group called the Digital Currency Initiative. So I started working with them early in my uh, early in my time at MIT. And our project was focused on working with the government of Mexico. And they were looking into applications of using cryptocurrency to help with remittance flows to lower the cost of sending it between groups in the U.S. and, and groups in Mexico, as well as looking at it for kind of uh, groups within Mexico. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember seeing a debate on Bitcoin with Paul Krugman, and that was the one use case for crypto that he was convinced by. Everything else, he was he was a huge skeptic on, and thought that traditional banking would be able to combat against uh, crypto. But for cross-border remittances, he was like, "Yep, I'm kind of stumped. I, I got to give it to you. This is a good use case for that." I, I think at this point, it makes sense. Back in 2015, 2016, the biggest problem was the the on and off ramps. You still had to convert on and off between fiat currency, and there wasn't like a rich enough ecosystem. Uh, so it turned out that we recommended not implementing a lot of these crypto systems because they were highly inefficient. It actually turns out that the, that the Mexican government has an exceptionally uh, efficient intra-company payment system. So it, they honestly did not need any of the crypto applications that we pitched. Got it, got it. So how do you get from there to multiply and tell us kind of what Multiply's mission was or is and and then kind of how you how you met your co-founders there and take us up to I guess YC. Yeah. Um, so I met my co-founders in January 2016. A lot of what I had, a lot of the teams I found myself working with at MIT with their, with their accelerator were in kind of the health tech space and specifically those that had some sort of hardware components. So I, I was interested in that space, obviously not having a technical background. I couldn't like produce any, any primary help to those teams um, in terms of actually developing any of the core research. Uh, but I, I met a lot of uh, potential entrepreneurs in the area and in, January of 2016, my now fiance at that point, girlfriend introduced me to uh, the guy who'd become my co-founder, Fred Perietti, uh, who was a PhD in robotics at MIT. Um, and he had been working with another PhD in pharmaceutical science, uh, Alici Malachi, and she had been, they had basically come up with this idea for 3D printing capsules. The purpose being, if you 3D print the outer shell of a, a pill, you can control the release profile. So for instance, if you wanted uh, drug A delivered at eight in the morning and drug B delivered at five in, the, five in the evening, by varying the thickness of the outer wall, you control when those different drugs were released in the body. Sure, what would be an example of kind of the most impactful use case of that technology if you took away all the FDA regulation, which we'll get into later? Yeah, so um, if you think about managing certain diseases, there's a, a pretty huge proliferation of drugs that you have to take at different points throughout the day. So an example is HIV. So I think everyone's kind of heard of uh, kind of this the HIV drug cocktail that you have to take. And it can be a huge number, sometimes dozens of, of different pills you have to take in the morning, some in the afternoon, some in the evening. And so the ability to combine those drugs 
into a single capsule and greatly simplify the pill regime is just enormously helpful for compliance reasons. And, and they're the direct benefits of if you take more, if you take them kind of at the same time, you're going to improve compliance. But then there are kind of the second order benefits as, uh, as well, which has shown that, I mean, there's a direct linkage between compliance and kind of overall medical spend in the U.S. Uh, and so by reducing the number of times that someone has to take pills throughout the day, there's a huge benefit to the individual patient as well as to the, the medical system overall. So in the in the simplest use case, let's say, you know, you're trying to get a once a day pill for something or capsule for 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 a medication that you'd normally take twice a day. How would this technology solve that problem? Yeah. So, I mean, a simple example that we always use is uh, one for like everyday people. So a lot of people take baby aspirin and that's just something they take on a, a regular basis. They like to take it in the morning. Plenty of other people, for instance, like to take melatonin in the evening to help them sleep. So the the way that we would produce this is we we 3D print the outer shell of the capsule. And within this capsule, there'd be two different compartments. The first compartment would have a thin capsule wall and that could allow it to release immediately or soon in the morning after taking it. The thicker shell wall could release later in the evening, ideally right before bed, um, which would allow for like a, a longer release profile. So, so you could basically a like- Russian doll of drug delivery, exactly. essentially. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And so that, that was kind of the, the initial idea was really around the release technology. And then the robotics came in, A, because we were 3D printing the capsules, and B, because uh, it really enabled this unlocking of full personalization, which meant not only varying when the drugs were released, but varying the dosage levels. If you look at certain dosage levels across drugs, supplements, they're in pretty standard categories, and it's a one size fits all approach to patients. But if you look at like what patients actually need, there's a huge array of that. So our robotics technology allowed us to really personalize drugs down to the milligram level and then custom deposit these powders into the capsules. Interesting. Interesting. So obviously there's nothing like this on the market currently. So take us through what you're thinking in terms of getting this approved for sale at some point, right? Yeah. So we, we thought about it in a few different ways. Um, the regulatory pathway is like pretty complex for this stuff. Basically, there's a, a few different ways. So if you're focusing purely on the, the drug side of it, because uh, for our, our proof of concept was in dietary supplements. So to demonstrate that we could build a pharma compliant facility to prove we could build these personalization robots to prove we could get a product approved into market. We focus first on dietary supplements in California, uh, which is still a surprisingly regula regulated uh, area. When you're focusing on drugs, there's a few different regulatory pathways. The first is call is the one that I think everyone's familiar with, which is the new drug application, the 505B1. And that's when you hear about phase one, phase two, phase three, drug path, 10 plus years, a billion dollars. Those are for new drugs. Those are the major pharmaceutical companies are going after those sorts of things. Yeah. And the startups that do go after those tend to raise tens of millions of dollars very early. They're often IPO even before they've brought a product to market. Sammy has a lot of experience doing just that. And I think that it seems like you were on a, a, a different path trying to kind of be a little bit more agile in your approach, right? Yeah. I mean, we always thought about it from what is, from what is the core of the company? And our core was robotics. Our Almost all of our team is roboticist. Um, we, base, we create the tools for personalization. 
And so when we thought about what the best path to market was, the 505B1 is really for companies innovative on the molecules themselves. So they're actually the ones who are literally coming up with new drugs. That's not really us. Our approach is we're not going to make the, the core molecules better. We're not going to make a better drug. We are going to make the delivery system more efficient and more practical for the patient. And so that's what it kind of led us to these other few pathways. And yeah, what were those pathways? Well, we considered, I, I would say it branched in two directions. One was taking a, a pharmacy route. So basically, there are a few different regulatory pathways. I believe it's the 503A and the 503B, and those are focused on uh, basically becoming a pharmacy. So you could custom custom make capsules for individual patients. Those are governed by individual state boards of pharmacy, uh, and that's a, the path that we consider going down. The other path is really focusing on, again, kind of drug approvals, and that branches, again, to two different paths that we found. The first was the abbreviated new drug application. I think that's the 505J. And that is, you, it's literally like a carbon copy of a new drug application. So a drug goes through, it gets approved. Uh, for the ANDA, um, you're, you're using the exact same research that's already been done. You're relying on existing clinical trials and you're resubmitting it with the hope of getting a, essentially a generic product approved. And a lot of the companies that go after this are going for a uh, lower priced alternative to get it in the hands of more people. And then the final path that we looked at was called a 505B2. And this one's interesting because uh, the, the ANDA is great, but it, it, it's a really strict regulatory path. Uh, you Again, it's carbon copy. You don't have a lot of space to innovate on the customer's interaction with the product, even the packaging. It, it's pretty strict. The 505B2 is basically for adapting, for developing new formulations using existing research. So for instance, you could take clinical studies that were done on a new drug application, even if it wasn't exactly the same drug. If for instance, you were developing a, some sort of combination drug, you could rely on clinical studies from multiple different drugs to make your case. Sure. And while you were researching that process, were there any kind of standout drugs that you wanted to maybe mimic or kind of serve as case studies for what the process in a best case scenario could go like? Um, I'm just not familiar. And I'm sure our listeners aren't necessarily familiar with what drug might go through what pathway. So is there kind of a, a gold standard for a company using that process effectively that you're aware of? For the 505B2? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the ones we like to model after uh, and the original inspiration were pediatric drugs. So a lot of times these drugs go through the normal uh, NDA approval process and therefore I mean, therefore, a very specific formulation, and that is for adults. And so a lot of companies have effectively used this pathway for pediatric applications for, for, for lower dosage levels. And so we thought that was just a, uh, I mean, kind of put a little bit of the, the thorn in our mind around, okay, if they're using this to have to essentially allow for lower dosage levels, potentially we could use it to unlock full personalization. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what was the biggest challenge that you ran into in during this process? Well, I think it's the, I think the FDA is pretty good about putting their thoughts out there. It's not always in a way that first time entrepreneurs can understand, but they do try to at least put a lot of materials out there. 
so much of it is just interpreting their regulations, interpreting like in your specific case, what that means. So I think that was a pretty big challenge of just wrapping our heads around what is the time involved? What is the cost involved? What do they expect to see? Because uh, the worst thing that you want, the worst case scenario that you imagine is you walk into the meeting and you just look like an idiot in front of the FDA and now you've burned your chances. I think the reality of what we found out is, especially for early stage companies, the FDA is much more forgiving in that regard. Um, they are very happy to work with companies at their onset, um, especially companies that haven't gone through the process. But that was just kind of getting the initial map of what was going on without spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on consultants was a pretty big early challenge. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you think startups should think about working with the FDA? You know, if you were advising an entrepreneur who came to you with a similar idea, they have an idea, they know that they're going to have to get it approved at some point. Um, how would you kind of level set with them? I think I'd probably frame it as engage as early with the FDA as possible, provided you're dealing with the final version of your product. So I think there are, I think a lot of people who, I mean, we talked to people who worked at the FDA, who had interacted with the FDA, and they always said, yes, inter- talk to them as early as possible. And I think that's, for the most part, really good advice. If it is a little bit of a moving target though, if you're still adapting your idea, you wanna go in with with a, a, a firm idea of what that is. It's okay to not know all the ins and outs of the process. It's less okay to, to kind of say, oh, we're thinking about doing this drug. Oh, that's difficult, then maybe we'll do this. That I think would probably be not great in, in the eyes of the FDA. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so you had this idea basically to use the 505B2 to get your first product to market using this technology, how did that end up playing out? And you know, was that ultimately the most effective strategy? Well, it's still going on right now. Um, I can't really talk about what, what stage it's at within the process outside of saying that like Multiply Labs is actively going through the 505B2 right now. And from all indications, it seems like it was the right strategy. Right, um, and when you referenced the pediatric drugs that were able to use the pathway effectively, did they have to, you know, do some of their own clinical trials? And, you know, what was, what's an idea of what the total cost for that kind of project has been or, or would be? I think it really depends on what drugs you're looking at and what the, the kind of the breadth of the research that has been done already is. Uh, if you're dealing with uh, a number of drugs that have, or a drug that has a ton of research already associated with it, there's been numerous clinical trials, your overall regulatory burden is going to be less. If there's been maybe one, if there's only been a couple clinical trials and they're not directly applicable, uh, the FDA could turn around and say, you know what, you need to run uh, a limited trial or even a full trial. And that can increase the cost. I think if you're looking at a drug or a number of drugs with a high or medium number of clinical trials, I would say a good estimate is in the low millions of dollars. But obviously that number can get a lot higher really quickly depending on the complexity of your application. Gotcha. And you know, from my experience, it seems like even for marketed drugs, there's really not a ton of information out there in the public domain about not only you know how the drug is made and manufactured and all that, but, you know, even the trials that were done, especially, you know, preclinical or sort of the, the early stage clinical trials, those aren't always available. Um, you know, even if you, for example, do a Freedom of Information Act request to the FDA, you know, they'll, they'll say that a lot of that information is proprietary to the company and, and confidential. 
Have you found that to be a challenge accessing data about existing drugs in order to leverage this 505B2 pathway? So uh, the FDA does have a database of approved drugs. And within that is the full application behind a lot of these drugs. And that includes clinical trials from phase one, two, and three. So it's not every clinical trial that's been done, but it's still like a pretty large database. And if you're referencing clinical trials that have been done, really you do want to use ones that were part of an approved drugs pathway rather than a drug that was denied. Because in that case, you're not really sure what happens, what happened there. So I would say there's, there are a tremendous amount of resources available in terms of the clinical trials. I mean, basically for every drug that's approved, there's, there's plenty of clinical trials that go in to support that one. And so, again, it depends on your individual drug, but I think there is a, a pretty big opportunity to leverage that database. Right. But I, I think you know, a lot of the information you're relying on is, for example, how the product is formulated, right, which, which kind of affects how this novel sort of capsule formulation would be different and or how it would be similar. And have you found that information to be difficult to obtain because um, it's sort of more related to manufacturing and formulation of the product? I mean, I think we have been able to find a good amount on the indiv- the the like, classification of the individual drugs we're thinking that we're considering using as well, both in terms of their performance, in terms of their safety, in terms of their efficacy. We found a good amount of information specifically around the clinical trials for those drugs. So. Again, it depends on the specific drugs, what information you're able to access, but they do try to push a lot of it into the public domain. Gotcha. Interesting. So you mentioned that a lot of the burden in approving a new drug relates to how much research has been done on the, the drug you're targeting. Do you find that more research has been done on products that have, or drugs that have just been on the market for a very long time? Or is there more of a correlation with the sales? So maybe like a blockbuster drug that was introduced just 10 years ago might have more research about it than a drug that's been on the market for 50 years, but wasn't that, wasn't that popular? Or what really drives or is it just kind of research interest from academics if it has some sort of novel pathway that it's that it's interacting with? What results in more research being driven towards a single drug? Yeah, I think it's the drugs that have the most research behind them. I found are the ones that have gone off patent and where a lot of generics have been introduced. Because keep in mind for the ANDA process, you are, I mean, you're developing kind of a carbon copy of those, but some of those still rely on clinical trials to be done. And so you do see this bubbling up of, um, and, and as you're also introducing different formulations or dosage strengths, a lot of times those also come with additional clinical trials. And so I think it is, it's drugs that are, I mean, are a little bit older where their patent has expired, yeah. um, but also have like, a, I think the, I mean, the other factor is obviously money. So like if there's a big market yeah. beyond the initial application, I think that's where you see a lot of innovation. Yeah, exactly. No one's going to do an ANDA for a generic of a drug that it doesn't sell at all. Right. Exactly. With. Got it. Um, so I'm curious in the midst of all this, you know, regulatory information that you're having to sift through and, and sort of strategize about. Um, have you ever taken a step back and just thought, you know, why does all this red tape exist? You know, why is it so difficult to make potentially a, a pretty obvious, you know, improvement or change to a drug that's been around forever? 
um, that we know is really safe? Or do you kind of feel like that regulation is, is warranted in order to protect people? I think my interactions with regulatory bodies in general, especially the FDA, is I, th- I think there's defin- I mean, it, I think at the FDA, there are very intelligent people first protecting the people out there. I think like I, I think I have a healthy appreciation for the fact that like they are looking out for consumers in a way that companies not are not necessarily doing. And so, yeah, I mean, it can definitely be frustrating, especially when you're dealing with these like years or even decades of drug development. But I think there's also a real reason behind a lot of this stuff. And I think I think the FDA is moving to not only I think in the past they've kind of said, oh, we're startup friendly, but I think their actions are definitely starting to match that as well. Uh, the, I don't know if the pace has necessarily increased that much. I know it definitely has in terms of approving generics. I know Scott Gottlieb, the outgoing director of the FDA, has been super uh, has pushed super hard for more and more generics on the market to just get them in the hands of more customers or more consumers. And I think that's like, I mean, that's absolutely the right approach when you have these skyrocketing drug costs. So I think the FDA is trying to move faster as well. But I mean, in terms of the regulations that exist, I think there's a lot of good reasons for all of them that are out there. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so any thoughts on the FDA commissioner leaving and what that might mean for just innovation in general? So I don't, um, yeah, I followed, like a lot of people, I followed uh, Scott Gottlieb on Twitter and I think like I was always, I thought he did a really good job of like connecting with the public, putting his mindset out there. I think a lot of people thought when he would come in, he would be very pro-business hands-off in terms of his like commissionership of the FDA. And it's been basically a polar opposite. He's been very involved. He's been um, a very vocal head of the FDA. I, I, for the most part, have thought he's done like a, a pretty good job pushing the FDA to think about a lot of the, uh, a lot of the ways that it's, uh, that it's doing things. Uh, I don't know the new, uh, the the new incoming director of the FDA, I think he was running the uh, the National Cancer Institute. So I'm sure that I'm sure the FDA is in good hands. But I don't really know if his approach is is close to Scott's or something different. But I I mean I th- hopefully the FDA continues in this direction of rapid improvement around regulation. Got it. Yeah. Well, I'd love to go into kind of what you're working on now and uh, maybe share with our audience um, kind of how to find you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm working on a, a couple different things now. My head is still in the biotech space, hard tech biotech space. I think there's still like a, there's a lot of stuff that's that's moving really quickly there. I've been I've only been in LA for a few months now, but I've been really impressed with the ecosystem down here and in biotech and health and some of the new endeavors that are starting up. Uh, I've been working with a, a couple companies over the last few months. One makes a actually makes a breath analyzer device that assesses your fat metabolism rate. And I think they're doing some really interesting things. Um, they're still, I think, in a kind of a stealthy mode. Um, so I can't say too much more about them. But I think there's a really I think there's a really interesting play there. And I also I think there's an interesting play in terms of a lot of the IP that universities have. I think over they've kind of followed the approach over the last few decades of accumulating as much as possible, but they haven't really been able to commercialize it outside of some some basic licensing deals. So I think there's actually that's a pretty fertile ground. So I've been I've been spending some time with a few people thinking about that as well. Cool, cool. And uh, where can people find you? Yeah. Obviously, um, it sounded like you're on Twitter. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, Joseph underscore uh, S underscore Wilson. Um, but people can also just email me at joseph.s.wilson at gmail.com. 
Okay, great. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us, Joe. And uh, if you're watching and you have any questions for him, uh, please leave them below in the comments and uh, we'll follow up and put you in touch. Um, so thanks so much, everyone. And have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today on another episode of How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy.co. We're a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We hope that you learned something today, or at the very least, we're entertained. And we'll be back very soon with our next episode. Thank you.